God, we thank you that you are a God who is always going before us. Every good impulse that we have in our hearts is, is a, a direct result of you at work um, and who you have made us to be and created in your image and, and now called uh, by your Son through the power of your Spirit to, uh, to do that good work. And we ask that you would work in our hearts so that uh, we would do so uh, joyfully. As we open your word this morning, I pray that you would send your spirit so that we would hear rightly and that we would know what it means to live as faithful followers of your son, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Uh, many of you know that I grew up in Alaska. And Alaska is called the last frontier. And my dad likes to say that uh, Alaskans live a lot closer to the food chain uh, than the rest of people. So being frontier people, we're still kind of in the, the hunting-gathering phase of existence. Uh, maybe someday we're going to catch on to farming and food production, stuff like that, like you guys who are more advanced have done. But for now, we're still kind of in that primitive hunter-gatherer uh, kind of stage. Uh, so every fall, uh, because of this, my dad would take me out uh, hunting. Uh, we'd go out uh, looking for moose and for caribou. Uh, and uh, the last time I went with him, we went in this tiny little two-seater Super Cub uh, float plane into a tiny little remote uh, lake in the middle of nowhere. Uh, we didn't see anyone else uh, all week long, even though we could see for miles and miles all around us, just totally isolated. And what that looked like is that we, we took a little tiny two-person tent. My dad and I are not super small people, and we're crowded into this tiny little tent, sleeping in sleeping bags on the ground, cooking our food over uh, a campfire. And all day, we'd, we'd go hiking around, and then in the evening, in the morning, we'd get our binoculars, we'd just look for moose. And my dad would do his little moose call thing. I'm not going to try to replicate it. It's a really weird sound, but somehow it actually works. Um, but when I think of, of hunting, this is what I picture. All right, this is what I grew up with. This is normal uh, to me, and, and, and I loved it. And to be honest, I don't care too much about the moose side of things. My dad cared about that because he wanted to have uh, meat in the freezer. But for me, it was a chance to spend time with him. It was a chance to be outside, to enjoy the beauty of God's creation. And I loved the whole thing. When I picture hunting, that's what I picture. Now, as I understand it, some of you think of hunting uh, a little bit differently than that. <laughs> Can I make a little bit of fun? Um, so, I haven't actually seen these in person, but I have heard rumors that some of you have built these, these very big tree forts, <laughs> and, and you have kind of uh, outfitted them with these comfortable padded chairs and heaters and, and all sorts of different amenities and things like that, and, and your idea of hunting is to kind of sit back in your, in your lazy boy and wait for the deer to come to you. Um, and, and when you think of hunting, that's what you picture, right? Those are two very different pictures of hunting. If my picture of hunting is Alaskan hunting and someone takes me hunting here in a, a plush tree fort, I'm going to be kind of confused. It's going to seem like an odd experience. I thought we were going hunting. What is this that we're doing up in a tree fort? Or if your picture of hunting is Michigan hunting and my dad takes you out in the Alaskan wilderness, you're probably going to freak out. It's, it's cold here. Where's my comfortable chair? This doesn't seem right. See, the wrong expectation can really ruin an experience for us. And so it is with this wonderful yet mysterious thing of marriage. It's possible for us to build a picture of marriage in our mind that is an idealized kind of picture. And the expectation that is set by that picture then can lead to devastating disappointment and frustration. 
In the past couple weeks, we've looked at this book of Song of Songs, this unique book in the Bible that celebrates the, the joy of human love and intimacy. And we've seen how beautiful that really is. And we've seen that, that this is God's design. This is what he has created us for. So we see how it's so good and why it's so good. But I'm, I'm a little concerned that as we've gotten into this, we might be getting something of a, of a honeymoon kind of vision or picture of what marriage is. And for those of us who are married then, it would be easy to hear that honeymoon picture of marriage and then be frustrated that our experience is different from that. So today we're going to get a little bit of a clarification of what we're talking about when we look at the biblical picture of marriage. It is a beautiful thing, but it's not the idealized picture that you might be getting in your mind. So we're going to look today at two kind of competing pictures of what marriage is, the honeymoon vision of marriage and the war vision of marriage. So first, let's talk about the honeymoon vision of marriage. Uh, probably somewhere along the line, you've heard the concept of a soulmate, right? The idea of a soulmate is that there's this one person, the one, and you're going to find the one. And that one person is going to be absolutely perfect for you. And as I've been reading the Song of Songs, it, it can look like that kind of picture. So Song of Songs, chapter 2, verse 16. The woman says, my beloved is mine and I am his. The beginning of chapter 4, the man says, How beautiful you are, my darling, oh, how beautiful. Chapter 5, the text that we're looking at today says, I have come into my garden, my sister, my bride. I have gathered my myrrh with my spice. I have eaten my honeycomb and my honey. I have drunk my wine and my milk. And the friends respond, Eat, friends, and drink. Drink your fill of love. It looks like in many ways that this Song of Songs relationship is an ideal relationship. They have found the one. They have found their soulmate. But what are we really looking for when we talk about finding the one? See, I think when, when we think about finding our soulmate, what we envision is this perfect person who likes most of the same things that I like, who allows me to pursue my own interests in my own timeline, who uh, meets all of my emotional needs and sexual needs and spiritual needs and accepts me exactly as I am without any kind of change needed and, and hopefully doesn't require too much of me in return. In other words, we're looking for a perfect person who will make me happy. Now, one of the problems if you are single and have this mindset is that no one is actually going to measure up to that. An article called Picky, Picky, Picky makes the point well. It lists all the reasons that the author heard for why some of his friends ended recent relationships. One woman said, how could I take him seriously after seeing the road less traveled on his bookshelf? Another woman said, well, sure, he's a partner, but it's not a big firm, and he wears those short black socks. A man said, well, it started out great, beautiful face, great body, nice smile, everything was going fine until she turned around. He paused ominously and shook his head. She had dirty elbows. See, we have this idea that there is that perfect person out there, and we view others through that lens. See, I think we have this idea that if I can find my soulmate, then marriage is going to be easy. This is the honeymoon vision of marriage. And the problem, as we've said, if you're single and if you have this soulmate kind of honeymoon vision of marriage is that you're never going to find that person. The problem, if you are married and have this mindset, is that you are going to be disappointed. So we turn again to our reliable source, Twitter. One man tweets this, relationship status. My wife asked me what I wanted for dinner 
and then told me I was wrong. Another man tweets, before I got married, I didn't even know there was a wrong way to put milk back in the fridge. <laughs> See, we have these, these even little minor things. We think, well, my soulmate would not mind the way I put milk in the fridge. My soulmate would not tell me I'm wrong about what I want for dinner. This a whole mindset shift, right? But even in this idealized poetry of Song of Songs, we see that things are not always perfect. In fact, the text that we're looking at today shows a bit of an argument. Let's look at this together. This is Song of Songs, chapter 5, looking at verses 2 through 8. The woman is speaking, and she describes this experience of things not going well. She says, I slept, but my heart was awake. Listen, my beloved is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my darling, my dove, my flawless one. My head is drenched with dew, my hair with the dampness of the night. She responds, I have taken off my robe. Must I put it on again? I have washed my feet. Must I soil them again? My beloved thrust his hand through the latch opening. My heart began to pound for him. I arose to open for my beloved, and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with flowing myrrh on the handles of the bolt. I opened for my beloved. But my beloved had left. He was gone. My heart sank at his departure. I looked for him, but did not find him. I called him, but he did not answer. The watchmen found me as they made their rounds in the city. They beat me, they bruised me, they took away my cloak, those watchmen of the walls. Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you, if you find my beloved, what will you tell him? Tell him I am faint with love. This is one of those scenes that that totally changes everything that was supposed to happen. It starts off with this kind of playful, really highly sexually charged atmosphere. And we already know from reading up to this point of Song of Songs that this woman has a strong desire for this man, and yet when he comes and knocks on her door, she appears to feign disinterest. It looks like there's kind of a playful thing going on here, and yet this playful attitude goes wrong and quickly escalates into an argument. So the man takes us the wrong way. He takes us as rejection, and he leaves, and then the woman is left there all alone. And yet she still wants him, so she runs after him. She tries to find him, but instead of finding him, she finds violence and remains distant from him. So this anticipation of their union comes crashing down with a sad reality of misunderstanding and discord. And it's all the more frustrating because the expectation was that this was going to be a good night. See, the expectation, that anticipation that had built up, then it makes the disappointment so much harder to take. Last July 4th, I made this plan that I was going to make uh, the best grilled pork ever on July 4th. I thought this was a great day to do it. I had a brand new grill. I had a recipe that I'd never had a chance to try out before. And so I, I had this, this great plan to do this. So I, I got all the stuff ready the night before. The, the pork was marinating all night long. I got up early the next day. I got the grill going. I got it all set up for this kind of indirect cooking. I was going to cook it all day long. And I'm just picturing this, this amazing uh, food at the end of the day. And so I get it all set up, I get the charcoal going, I, I put the meat on there, and I close the lid, and I'm, I'm pleased with my progress. And so my wife and I are sitting there on the deck, in the sun, enjoying a cup of coffee together, the kids are playing in the yard, and we start to smell the meat cooking. And it builds the anticipation all the more because it smells fantastic. This is going to be a great meal ahead of us. So a few hours later, I decide to go and check on the grill again to see if it still has enough charcoal to see if everything is going well and if I need to change anything. 
But to my alarm, when I walked over to the grill, I saw on the temperature in the front of it that the temperature was 450 degrees on that grill. And those of you who know something about cooking know that you can't cook pork for that long at that high of a temperature. I opened the lid, and to my dismay, this beautiful pork roast had shriveled down to nothing, and it was totally blackened on the outside. By 11 a.m., that, that all-day-long cooking had been destroyed, and there was just this gross little piece of cardboard left on that thing. And, and all I could think of was how, uh, how delicious that was supposed to take and all of the work, all the planning, all the preparation that had gone into that. And we tried to eat it, but it was just bitterly disappointed. It wasn't worth it at all. Now, in that case, the only one to blame was me. It was clearly my fault. It was a new grill. I hadn't learned how to do this uh, particular grilling technique on this grill yet. It was my fault. Not so with marriage. See, if your spouse doesn't live up to your soulmate expectation, well, then it's their fault. They have become then the object of your disappointment. And if you have a honeymoon vision of marriage, this is going to be devastating. That's the path to disappointment and resentment and bitterness. A few weeks ago, actress Scarlett Johansson caused a little bit of a stir when she said that she felt that monogamy is unnatural. She said, I think the idea of marriage is very romantic. It's a beautiful idea, and the practice of it can be a very beautiful thing. And yet she comes to the conclusion that, that it is an unnatural thing, explaining, well, it's a lot of work. Now, it would be easy for us to, to dismiss what she's saying out of hand, but I think she's put her finger on an important feeling that many of us have. See, when we realize that marriage is hard work, it's easy to feel like something is wrong. It should be easier than this. If not easy, at least easier than what we're experiencing. It can feel like a very unnatural thing to have love be a difficult thing. And yet that's because our thinking on this is skewed. See, at the heart of the problem with a honeymoon vision of marriage is the fact that it takes my personal happiness as the goal of marriage. And this is really why the concept of soulmate is so attractive to so many of us. It is about someone making me happy. I want this other person who can affirm me in all the ways that I want to be affirmed, who can support me in all the ways I want to be supported, and who can provide everything that I need to make me happy. But wait a minute. No human can ever do that for you. If this is our expectation going into marriage, we are putting a crushing burden on this other person. They were never designed to be able to meet all of the needs that we have in our hearts. Really, what we're looking for, if this is our mindset going in, is for someone to provide the role of God in our lives that is simply another human. No human is ever going to be able to do this. That hole in our hearts, that the deepest longings of our hearts can only be fulfilled by God himself. And to put that burden on another person is disastrous. So I want to propose an alternative vision of marriage, a vision of marriage that is the war vision of marriage. It's a bit of a dramatic uh, way of putting it, uh, I realize. It's not my idea. I'm actually stealing this concept from a man named Paul Tripp. He says this, marriage is war. And, and some of us kind of laugh inside or, or nod inside, but it's probably not what you're thinking. The war of marriage is not the war between husband and wife, like the battle of the sexes or the battle over the, the right way to put milk in the fridge. That's not the fundamental war of marriage. 
See, the conflict that we have with our spouse is simply an outworking of a much more important war, and that's the war that's happening inside my heart and inside your heart. Listen to how the Bible describes the war that is happening inside of us. This is the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7. He says, I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil that I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me, for in my inner being I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind, making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. This is the fundamental war of marriage. It's the fundamental war of every follower of Jesus. Inside my heart, there is a battle. It's the battle between that that self-centered side of me that wants things my way, that, that sees me as the ultimate good, and yet cannot seem to do what I know is right. And then there's the other side of me, that the person that God has created me to be, the person he is making me to be by the power of his spirit. Inside of my heart, there is a battle between these two sides. When we fight with our spouses, it's part of that bigger war. But the good news is our spouse can actually be our greatest ally in that battle that's going on inside of our hearts. Let's turn just briefly here to a really important passage on marriage in the Bible. It's from Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to look at more of this next week, but I want to key in on just a part of it today. It's instructions for how we are to relate to one another as husbands and wives. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. And the passage goes on a little bit. We'll look more at that next week. But for now, we see that, that Paul is using the analogy of Christ and the relationship to the church to describe the, the marriage relationship. And in particular, I want you to look at verse 26 here. What Jesus did is, is come to give himself for the church to make her holy cleansing her with the washing of water through the word. In other words, Christ's desire here, and the husband's desire is to mirror this, is for the holiness of his people. See, when we think in, in soulmate terms, what we typically want is a spouse who will not demand much change from us. But the reality is every single one of us needs to change There are things in our heart that are not right. There are attitudes and actions that we do that are not right. Each one of us is a sinner. We need to be transformed. Each one of us is, we're more deeply flawed. We are more imperfect and sinful than than we would ever care for another person to find out, even more so than we realize ourselves. For those of us who are followers of Jesus, God is taking us 
sinners that we are, and he is doing something to us. He is sending his spirit to enter into our hearts and to fight that battle between the selfish me and the me who's designed by God. The problem with marriage is that it amplifies that battle by putting us in such close contact with another person. And what happens in that close contact when you're, when you're sharing a bathroom, when you're sharing a bed, and when you're sharing a refrigerator and a kitchen, all this stuff, living side by side, day in and day out, what happens is that we find out how selfish and sinful we really are. And that's not a fun thing to find out. But the good side of it is in finding out how selfish and sinful we are, we're pointed back to the gospel. See, the story of Jesus is called good news, gospel, that's what gospel means, because it tells us that when we are at our worst, God sent Jesus to rescue us. This is good news for imperfect people, for selfish, sinful people. God's salvation isn't giving a little boost to really good people. God's salvation is for the miserable people who don't have hope anymore. You read the gospel accounts of of Jesus interacting with others, and this is what you find time after time. It's those who are at the end of themselves that are so full of joy when they encounter Jesus. This is good news for sinners like you and me. So when we are faced with our selfishness and our sin, we realize our need for God's grace and healing, and we are pointed back to the gospel. Our spouse, then, can be our biggest ally in God's work of making us new. We point each other back to the grace that is found in him and point each other to the person that God is making us to be. See, what the war vision of marriage teaches us is that my personal happiness is not the most important goal of marriage. The goal of marriage should be my holiness and my spouse's holiness. And what we find is if that's what we pursue with this other person, what we discover is actually a much deeper and greater happiness than we ever thought possible. Now let's get back to our our story in Song of Songs here and see what happens coming out of this argument that we see here. Song of Songs chapter 5, beginning in verse 9. The friends respond to this woman who is looking for her lover. How is your beloved better than others, most beautiful of women? How is your beloved better than others that you so charge us? Remember, she's still looking for him. He's lost. She responds, My beloved is radiant and ruddy, outstanding among 10,000. His head is purest gold. His hair is wavy and black as a raven. His eyes are like doves by the water streams, washed in milk, mounted like jewels. His cheeks are like beds of spice, yielding perfume. His lips are like lilies, dripping with myrrh. His arms are rods of gold set with topaz. His body is like a polished ivory decorated with lapis lazuli. His legs are pillars of marble set on bases of pure gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as its cedars. His mouth is sweetness itself. He is altogether lovely. This is my beloved. This is my friend, daughters of Jerusalem. In other words, he looks pretty good. The friends respond, where has your beloved gone, most beautiful of women? Which way did your beloved turn that we may look for him with you? She responds, my beloved has gone down to his garden, to the bed of spices, to browse in the gardens and to gather lilies. I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. He browses among the lilies. In other words, it looks like she is reconciled. She has found him again. And then he responds. It's his turn to say that she's very pretty. You are as beautiful as Tirzah, my darling, as lovely as Jerusalem, as majestic as troops with banners. Turn your eyes from me. They overwhelm me. 
Your hair is like a flock of goats descending from Gilead. Probably don't use that line. Uh, Your teeth are like a flock of sheep coming up from the washing. Also not that one. Uh, Each has its twin. Not one of them is missing. Your temples behind your veil are like halves of a pomegranate. Sixty queens there may be and eighty concubines and virgins beyond number. But my dove, my perfect one, is unique. The only daughter of her mother, the favorite of the one who bore her. The young women saw her and called her blessed. The queens and concubines praised her. So we see that the two are reconciled. And and of course, this is poetry. We don't know how they were reconciled. We don't hear the whole conflict resolution and all of that kind of thing. But what it shows us is that there is a beauty of that relationship on the other side of the conflict as well and on the other side of that disappointment that we saw earlier. Now, how does that actually happen? Let's break down a fight here. See, the reality is that every marriage has conflict and every couple fights. If we have this honeymoon vision of marriage, we're going to say that all fighting is bad. But remember, we're giving up on that, and we're seeing that there is a better picture here. So what we need to learn then from this war vision of marriage is to how to fight well. In other words, how to fight with positive results, results that draw us closer to God and closer to the people that he is making us to be. So let's, let's break down a little bit of an argument. Let's say that my wife and I get into a, a disagreement. Let's say we're driving uh, out to Chicago, to the Chicago area to see some friends. We went to college there, have a lot of close friends there. We're anticipating a great week together. Uh, and as we head south over the lake, we come into northwest Indiana, and I see uh, signs for I-90 and I-94. And I've made this trip a million times, but I've, I've forgotten which one I'm supposed to take to get uh, in the way I want to get to the city. So I asked my wife uh, to pull out the road atlas um, to uh, check on something. Am I supposed to take I-90 or am I supposed to take I-94? Now, I know you hear Road Atlas and you think, well, how old is this guy? We still use Road Atlases. It's okay. So my wife uh, dutifully grabs the map out of the back seat and starts looking. Now, I've had hours to ask this question, right? We've been drawing all the way south through all of Michigan. We've just gotten into Indiana. And, and within, you know, now I've waited to the last minute. She's got 40 seconds to give me this answer. And this is a big, big road atlas, right? This is a big deal. So she's going to find Indiana. She's got to find the corner of the lake. She's got to find the roads that I'm talking about and then decipher in uh, what I want to have happen to get to the right place. And I, I uh, am very patient, of course. So when she doesn't respond in 10 seconds, I'm starting to push more because I realize I've got to pick a lane here. I'm seeing that there's traffic all around me. I need to make a decision right now. I've given you 40 seconds. 10 seconds is up. Time is wasting. And so I'm pushing on her, pushing on her. And she's, of course, responding to my comments by having more stress. And then I'm actually distracting her from the task at hand. And I get frustrated because, well, the turn is right here. And so I use my best conflict resolution skills, and I just say, well, never mind. Put the map away. It'll be fine. I'll figure it out. We don't talk for the next 30 miles. Now listen, this fight happens on basically every single extended road trip my wife and I have ever taken, and we've been married for over 11 years. Why do we keep having this fight? It's so silly. It's so little. What what is going on that causes such stress and such hard feelings in this? Well, it's not just about directions, right? It's not just about reading a map. First of all, there's a history of this fight in the past. As soon as I ask her to get out that road atlas, tension rises because we know where this is going to go. It hasn't been pretty in the past, and it's probably not going to go very well today. 
And then on top of that, there's the whole family history of the right way of doing things. And, and in my family, my dad always drove everywhere. My mom didn't like driving, so my dad always drove, and he had an incredible sense of direction. He never seemed to get lost. And then on top of that, there's the pain of, of failing the other person's expectations. And then tied to that are questions of self-worth. But remember, the main conflict of marriage is the conflict that's happening inside of my heart. And in, in my heart, there is this sinful side of me that always wants to be in control. Really, what I want to have happen is for me to be able to drive the car and me to be the one in the passenger seat looking at the map, telling me exactly where to go when I want that information. I want to be in control of both of those situations. And I want Emily to be able to think like I think and to do exactly what I would do in that situation. I want to have control. See, the reason I use an atlas is because I know that Google Maps is going to take me up to 294. I don't want to go to 294. I want to go over to 355 and go up that route. I don't even trust Google Maps to get me the way that I want to go. That's the level of control that's in that self-centered side of my heart. And in addition to that, there's this feeling of failure that the reality is I've taken this trip so, so many times. How many times have I decided not 90, stay on 94, get to 80, get to 355? How many times have I done this? And still, I can't seem to remember which of these two roads I'm supposed to take. So I feel like a failure. I must not have the kind of sense of direction that my dad had. I must be less of a man than him. And then in Emily's heart, there's this parallel battle that's being fought in her heart. See, when I ask for help, she immediately takes this as a test of her intelligence. And if she cannot pass this, if she cannot find the answer in time, she's going to feel stupid. And then if she feels stupid, she will have failed. And then maybe I won't love her anymore. That's what's going on in our hearts. That, that conflict, that stress that we feel, that tension in the car, is not about finding the right way. The tension is these deep questions that we have in our hearts. So how are we ever going to get past that? Well, we have to remember that context. We have to be able to acknowledge what's going on in my heart. I realize that there is this side of me that I do not like, but that side of me is the enemy. My spouse is not the enemy in that fight. My spouse is an ally in that fight. The enemy is that sinful, self-centered side of me that wants to have control of every situation, that wants to find my security in knowing that I am in the right. And the same thing is happening for my wife. I, I need to rest in knowing that God is the one who is in control. I need to rest in, in being okay with, with his view of me and his estimation of me. And same for my wife. She needs to find affirmation not in me or not in her intelligence and those false gods, but she needs to know that God loves her no matter what. Even if everyone else feels like she's a failure, no matter what, God loves her. See, it's from that diagnosis of looking what's really going on inside of our hearts that we can see what's really happening. This is why I'm frustrated with you. It's not because you have failed me. It's because I have these totally unrealistic expectations and I'm looking to this external circumstance to meet something that is a deep need inside of me. What I really need is to go back to the gospel and to receive the healing that is found there. See, it's from this diagnosis that we're able to see what really is going on and what we really need in our hearts. And we're able to repent from that, that sinful, self-centered side of us and find God's forgiveness. And then from that forgiveness, we're able to heal this other person, or we're able to forgive this other person. We run to the gospel. We find God's healing there. 
Listen, this is not an easy thing. If you have been in any relationship for any amount of time, you know that this is not easy. This can be an exhausting process. It can be painful to discover what's really going on inside. But it's pointing us back to the end of this battle. Remember when, when Paul was saying in that Romans 7 passage that, that he hates what he does, he wants to do the right, but there's this battle going inside. He, he concludes that, that, little sent, uh, that little paragraph by saying this, What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that's subject to death? In other words, he sees this battle going on and, and it just makes him feel terrible. But then there's an answer. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Christ Jesus our Lord. There is an answer to this. The deepest longings that we have in our heart, the biggest questions we have about who we are and where our value comes from, what our identity is, are found in Christ, who came to rescue us. Now, this is a lesson that we need to learn whether we are single or married. The war in our hearts is a big deal. And whether our selfishness and sin are pointed out by our spouse or by some other kind of circumstance in life, we have to take the opportunity to do the right thing with the pain that that causes. We have to allow that to expose what's in our heart so that we run to the cross, we confess that sin, repent of it, and then find forgiveness and healing where they can only be found in Christ himself. And that means there is great hope. Whether your spouse is running after Christ or not, there is still hope here because the real healing that we need is found in God himself. Listen, the greatest needs that we have in life cannot be met by a soulmate or a best friend or any other human. This is true. The greatest needs that we have in life cannot be met by a soulmate or a best friend or any other human. What you and I need more than anything else is a real relationship with God. It's when we run to Him, when we find our identity in Him, when we find our meaning in Him, when we find our purpose in Him, when we find our affirmation in Him, that we are able to find the wholeness that we are really looking for, the answers to those deepest longings in our heart. And it's when we receive that healing and wholeness from God that we're able to actually love another imperfect person. And that's what marriage is designed to be at best. It is two people pointing each other to the true source of healing and hope. It's war. It is hard work. But it is a fantastic thing at best. What we need more than anything else is for God to meet the greatest desires of our heart. And the good news is through his son Jesus, we have that answer. Yes, he will do it. Please join me in prayer.